Hello, welcome to Circuit and Gear, a podcast where we discuss scenic automation and other interesting tech. I'm Gareth Connor. And I'm Harry Beauregard. Harry Beauregard. <laughs> Gotta use the sound effects. Um, <laughs> so Harry, welcome to the podcast. I thought it would be fun to get you uh, on the on the mics and tell us a little bit about uh, what you do here and all that good stuff. So thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. So let's start off first with... Uh, what the heck do you do here at Creative Connors? Well, I'm glad you asked. Uh, <laughs> I, I mostly do some mechanical design. Uh, I also project manage. Uh, I do some mechanical fabrication. I'll wire some stuff up. I'll take my sh machines out on the road and install them and strike them. Um, I also do some stuff with uh, kind of figuring out how we're going to do things in the shop and checking out tooling, and I clean a bathroom every fourth Friday, <laughs> like everyone else around here. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, for anyone who doesn't know, uh, we're very egalitarian when it comes to bathroom cleaning, and as we've expanded in our little complex here, we now have more bathrooms. So there was a while when, like, with every person added you could push your bathroom date off one more week, right? So, like, when there was only three of us here, once every three weeks you were cleaning a bathroom, and then... When there were 10 of us here, it was like once every 10 weeks. And then we got more shop spaces and more bathrooms. So now it's we're back to once every four weeks. Yeah, more bathrooms, more problems. <laughs> That's right. Although handy to have. Yeah. Useful <laughs> in the morning. <laughs> awesome. So we're going to talk about all those sorts of different things. But before we get into the nuts and bolts, um, where did you end up going to school? What did you study? How did you kind of get started in this racket? So where did you go to college? I guess let's, uh, let's start there. Yeah. Uh, so I went to Connecticut College uh, over in New London, Connecticut. Uh, it, was, it was a great time, a little uh, kind of bucolic, uh, gated community campus. Uh, but I, I studied film and government. And at the end of my time there, I kind of thought I was going to be a lawyer. I a was, lawyer? Yeah. I took the LSATs and everything. Oof. Yeah. And wow, that's a, we don't have a lot of people here that were almost lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> Emphasis on almost, <laughs> not even really. <laughs> and so after you graduated, then what did you do with that? Did you go off and actually work in the law for a bit or? Yeah, yeah. I kind of got a job with a startup, which was peripherally law related. They employed a lot of lawyers. Um, it was a company that helped people apply for social security disability and it sounded all great in theory. And then in practice, it got a little soul-sucking, and or I kind of realized that lawyers just aren't really my people, um, and I think that, that kind of drove... We're not certain they are people <laughs> at all. <laughs> Up for debate. <laughs> so how long did you do that, this, the soul-sucking part? I, a little less than two years I, okay. was, I was there, and, and then I realized that wasn't for me. Gotcha. Um, and at the time, I was I was really into triathlons, so I kind of oh. used the pretense of, hey, I'm going to train for this big race, uh, and I'm so quick. we had to get out of here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was a lot of pretense. But, it, it, but I, was, I was glad to like take a moment and kind of reassess my life. Yeah. And so you did that, though. Yeah, I did. How, how was the triathlon? Oh, it was great. Yeah. I, I went to London. and uh, No kidding. You did in London. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, in Hyde Park. It was, it was a cool time. Nice. And because you swam a lot as a youth. Yeah. Yes. 16 years competitively. Oof. Yeah, I don't do that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> that was enough. <laughs> just 16, huh? Yeah, just, just enough. Just 16 years of watching the line. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep, there's a reason I don't do it anymore. <laughs> well, that's impressive on, on all counts. That's, uh, that's pretty cool. Gee, thanks. So then, so you, after you did the triathlon, you probably had to face the hard life question of, am I just going to 
keep training for triathlons as my job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Given my like lack of preternatural uh, physical abilities, I was like, this probably isn't going to work out in the long term. So I had to consider real employment prospects. Um, and at the time, my sister was working as a freelance lighting technician in New York, um, and she was very she's always a really good person supporting me and whatever I want to do in my life and she was like hey I know you liked theater in general and just the lifestyle of that well why don't you come down here and I can set you up with some gigs as a you know some freelance scenic uh, carpentry calls and so I moved down there kind of on a lark on a subletting from her subletter oh. um, and you know spent like a month trial I was like I'll just go down for a month and see how I do it if not I can come back to Rhode Island uh, and then it was great. And I just kept on booking gig after gig after gig and meeting new people and getting to work in new theater spaces and events and stuff like that. And I really enjoyed the, the sort of the, um, the vibe of. Yeah. The camaraderie, like it's yeah. good people, right? Very different from lawyers. Exactly. Pretty <laughs> much, you know, the logical alternative after law, you, they always go to stage, right? right? Exactly. And so your sister was working there as an electrician. Is your, are there other folks in your family that are theater based then? Yeah. Yeah. I actually come from a big uh, theater family. Uh, okay. My, my dad is a, a, an actor, uh, primarily a fight choreographer uh, is his, his, his bread and butter. Um, oh. Uh, and he teaches acting a lot nowadays uh, and, and we'll still act from time to time. Uh, my mom's is, is an arts administrator. She was the executive director of a theater for a while. Uh, I got a half brother who's a lighting guy and now has his own fabrication shop. I got another brother who's a sound technician in New York. Okay. So, like, so it's, it's, yeah, it goes deep. It, gets, <laughs> it runs deep. So you were kind of bucking the trend actually by going towards law and then kind of came back to the fold. When yeah. Law is like the screw you mom and dad. I'm going to go work in the arts, except instead it's, <laughs> it's the other way around. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly. Yeah. It's a, I, I that's how I feel it is with my daughters right now as well. Like both my wife and I are, you know, cut uh, in the entertainment business and our daughters have no interest in that. We'll come back. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> Somebody's got to pay for me in my old age. <laughs> well, that's really cool. And then your parents, uh, we just found this out during the little pre podcast that your parents actually ran a theater too. Yeah, they did that for I think like eight or I nine mean, like years. Founded a theater. I they founded say. a theater company based in my hometown. They did like it started as like a summer theater festival in the woods where they'd like build all the sets from scratch every year and you know setting them up in the middle of the forest and wow uh, yeah it was it was a big thing. Uh, they, I think they. I think in peak some uh, weekends they'd get like 40, 50,000 people sometimes to come in a single weekend. Holy moly. Yeah. yeah that's but, pretty serious. Yeah. But it wasn't lucrative <laughs> and it was very time consuming. Um, so they that found story checks out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so they yeah. found more stable income in the arts world. Sure. And, sure. 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 But they did it. I mean, they, they were obviously it's a hard road to hoe, but, uh, sounds like they they did it for nearly a decade though so that's a pretty i mean even though it, they had to fold it up it's a pretty successful artist endeavor it seems to me yeah yeah the Cumberland company was a labor of love and yeah there's a lot of heart you know and dead set supporters to this day yeah yeah that's really cool that's really cool so jumping back forward so you're in new york you you're kind of working around the scene freelancing and so on yeah and how long did you do that? I did that uh, a little over a year and a half. Um, I was and I was bouncing around from place to place. Uh, at one point, I, I overhired at a, the Atlantic Theater Company, and I ran into our mutual friend Mike Wade, <laughs> uh, who was production managing at the time. Right, <laughs> he got you met the hurricane. Yeah, he he, met, he had me do all kinds of fun carpentry tasks, like clearing the debris off the building from the previous snowstorm that had knocked down a bunch of branches, <laughs> and 
and uh, you know basic theatrical carpentry. They, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Other duties as a sign. <laughs> yeah, and loading in sets. That was, that was good. Yeah, was yeah, good yeah, time. yeah. And then, and then at some point, you decide. You want to go back to school because obviously at this point you, you're all your education, all your formal education has been in film and government, writing right? papers and emails. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's yeah, yeah. that's where my strength lied at that point. And so I was, yeah, I was freelancing, and, and I was like, hey, I, can't, I think this could be a career. I think I really want to do this, but I don't really have any formal education in that. So that's when I started looking at grad schools. Uh, yeah. And, and so you went back to Connecticut. Mm -hmm. Yep. As I want to do somehow. <laughs> uh, yeah. And I ended up doing, uh, I did, I did my master's at uh, Yale School of Drama's technical design and production program. And that was a great time. Uh, they have an okay program they, from what I understand, from they, what I've heard. Here. It's pretty all right. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And, and you enjoyed that. It seems. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think all in all, like, you know, every every grad school sure program hard. is, is yes. hard. <laughs> it's <laughs> a lot of work. You don't get paid a lot, but <laughs> right. you come out with some marketable skills. So that was right. good. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then it, you went in there, though, imagining that you'd be, like, technical director or you were always thinking automation or you're going to sound or what? Yeah, no, I, I, well, I, I didn't really know what I wanted when I got there, just that this seemed right, like a good path. And then I kind of drifted towards... Uh, technical direction I thought that that seemed really cool and that was sort of the, the primo gigs were trying to get TDs on TD on the big shows and right and like there seemed there was a lot of good connections to the regional theater world and that seemed really exciting um, and then the more I worked I was like an ATD and TD on shows I thought the, the thing that excited me more was you know was doing the automation projects and designing machines and that was kind yeah. of the cool fun stuff so I kind of unknowingly gravitated more and more towards that uh, through my time there and just, just sort of picked up all the skills you sort of needed to, to be a more effective automation person. Yeah. No, I, I know all those feelings because as a, I, I never went to grad school, but as an undergrad, I thought I was going to be a regional theater TD. That was my, my course in life until I spent like two years out in regional theaters watching what TDs really did. And I was like, <laughs> Oh, there's a lot less like, working on cool technical problems and a lot more like labor disputes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> a lot, a lot less like, like dramatically bringing the set pieces together <laughs> and a lot more sitting in front of an Excel spreadsheet <laughs> and emailing people the same information. Right. Again. Right. Yeah. I mean, God bless them. I, I, good TDs are impressive at what they do, but it is, uh, it takes an awful lot of management skills and, and all sorts of, it seems like you end up delegating an awful lot of the things that were initially interesting to me. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then it, as it turns out, you're actually a native Rhode Islander. That's true. I grew up in uh, Cumberland, Rhode Island. And so I know where things are and I know where things used to be. Right. Which is a very Rhode Island thing. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> Down by the old social quay, where the CVS used to be, you know. <laughs> exactly. But that worked out phenomenally for us because one of our challenges is always finding like, finding great automation people who who I would say even tolerate moving to Rhode Island, <laughs> let alone like want to move to Rhode Island. So we're like, wait a second, what now? <laughs> You're like, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'd like to come to Rhode Island. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah, no, Providence is great, but don't tell anyone because we got a cap on how many cool people we can have here. <laughs> One's got to go if you're going to come. <laughs> exactly. Yep. Cool. Well, that's great. So let's get into some of the, um, I think we'll, we'll focus up most of our talk on the custom mechanical design. Well, I say custom on the mechanical design work. A lot of this is going to be custom. We do actually have a stock product in the, in the mix here to talk about, but so much of what you, 
Well, I shouldn't. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's one facet of what you do, but it's one definitely the, what you brought me in when you when when you were hiring me. You said it's oh, what I told you you would you be do. doing. <laughs> <laughs> it's blossomed into so much more since then, and that that story checks out with just about <laughs> just about everything. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like hey, you'll do some of this <laughs> <laughs> at points. <laughs> Other duties as assigned. Yep. Um, so. Very shortly after you came on board, we were midstream on the ESPN um, Seaport Studio job uh, in the second studio. And actually, we were on the last, or not last episode, but two episodes ago, we were talking to Steve Nath about the original Push Stick Mini Design, which also grew out of that project. But there, you had another chunk of work in there. So what, tell me a little bit about what... Uh, what was it that you had to jump into? So it, so it was two axes um, that were monitors that were flying up and down. So they had these TV screens um, that in the case, that, so normally they got a big table that the anchors sit around and in the event that uh, any one of two of the three uh, anchors aren't in there, they can drop these monitors down and then they can have a big floating head instead of a in-person anchor sitting there. Right. Um, so it was figuring out the rigging path from wherever the machine we could, wherever we could fit the machine because it was a pretty tight space. It's incredibly tight it's up there, there, right? Yeah. yeah. I think we our, our real estate for the, for all the machines and rigging was six inches between the top of the lighting grid and the bottom of the <laughs> Drywall ceiling, which was really less because when you added like that inch and a half of like acoustic insulation, it was more like four and a half inches of <laughs> covered in fiberglass shards goodness. <laughs> it's a really slim like plane that we could fit the automation into. Mm -hmm. And then also we couldn't really put the machines over, as I recall, couldn't put the machines like over top of where the... Uh, the monitors themselves lived, right? Like they had to be kind of like, there's only certain spots in the ground plan where the machines could go versus where the monitors had to live. Right? Oh yeah, absolutely. And one of the pick points was like right over a soffit that dropped down to like eight feet. So it was like ne negative, negative rigging space there. <laughs> <laughs> so it was all kinds of spatial challenges and just trying to figure out how to make this not a nightmare of pulleys everywhere. And then I think, and then on top of that, cause they were, they're TV monitors. They need, a bunch of uh, cables getting down to them for power and data um, and some other things. So we were trying to figure out a cable management solution to, so that as these things drop down, they're, they're paying out the cable they need. Um, and we couldn't fit anything like our conventional solutions to that, like a cable retractor, um, just because of the tight constraints. Um, there was nothing. They had, they had big aesthetic concerns, too, about what was going to be seen, like as those cables dropped down, as, rec as I recall. Oh, uh, yeah. Them, right? <laughs> <laughs> I tried to block that out, but <laughs> thanks for reminding me. <laughs> And so you ended up having to do, um, we, we kind of made a, like a custom hoisting trick line roughly, um, to, to motivate those things, but then figuring out all of the, like the, the rigging plot for that was kind of a mess just of managing those cables, both the lifting lines and then also the, well, we also, and there were multiple lifting lines, right? I mean, obviously there were more than one lifting line, but each side of the monitor like decoratively wanted more than one lifting line if i recall right? right yeah so there were four four picks per monitor so there was two on either side on these little stood off aluminum blocks which we had, we just kind of kind of kept taking on more and more of the scope of these monitors and the boxes that they were being being fabricated by the scenic vendor because it was like okay we just need to keep the, sort of the rigging in our court and it, and it worked out fine i think at the integration yeah. um uh, but we had to do some some pretty funky muling. So I was just trying to keep the number of pulleys down uh, in order to like kick under that soffit. There was a weird 
like three out of plane bends <laughs> in really yeah. sh- short succession going around one shiv that was like i think an inch and a quarter like <laughs> tread <tiny>. diameter <laughs> <laughs> yeah so it was it was it was pretty tight and then and then i think that and then the solution that we came up with for the cable because we couldn't find any conventional like cable reel or management product was well, how about we just reeve the cables into the machine and they go where the wire rope goes. So instead, right. so given our, our kind of hoist, our, uh, hoisting trick line configuration, rather than kind of pulling right on on the carriage, uh, on our liter- linear actuator, we put a bunch of pulley blocks, um, a bunch of custom pulleys that we turned in-house ourselves right? <laughs> uh, to, in order to to accommodate the different ODs of the cables. So there is all kind of two-to-one. Uh, two-to-one the hard way. The right? hard way. So we're getting more travel as the as the carriage moved back and forth. Right. So if, for folks that are listening, if you kind of imagine instead of like, if you take a block and fall and instead of pulling on the, the hand line, you pull the blocks apart, right? So that you pull the blocks apart, which takes more force, but you get double the, in this case, double the distance out of the hand line. And then the monitor would be attached to what would be a hand line on a block and fall the fall of the block and fall i guess yeah yeah <laughs> so some of our lines were like terminated gag connections and some of them were cable grabs for the cable uh and then they, it was all reeved through a bajillion shivs down to where they needed to go but ultimately i haven't gotten any service calls on that so that's and there were two of them and there are two of them right yeah. yeah yeah no and that worked out really well but you had to you were definitely thrown into the deep end on that right because you were days in here yeah (laughs) and so what was that like navigating that because not only are you kind of well i just talked that through a little bit like you're navigating like the tools and then like learning who the fuck the people are in the place and all that stuff yeah yeah it was i mean i think it was a really good opportunity i mean it was it was definitely stressful at times but i think it was a good way to learn everything because you just have to and which is the only way i learn things (laughs) um so it was like what you know what do we do from everything that's obvious is like how do we like to draft things and how we like to construct shivs to like who is everyone in this building and who do i need to talk to at various stages for okay well this is an electrical thing so i should talk to Sylvia, okay, I need some holes drilled, so I should talk to Mark, but also be mindful that Mark's got a lot on his plate right now, and he might not be super happy, so he's pleasing <laughs> thank you a lot. Um, and to be clear, regardless of whether or not Mark has a lot of things on his plate, like, he will just... <laughs> you always want to say please and thank you. <laughs> it goes a long way. <laughs> With everyone, but especially him. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. And, and on that project, you were reminding me that... The, it, like while we typically design all our machines in fusion, that one we did not. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So I think, uh, Steve was doing the machines in, in fusion because he was really comfortable with the workspace, but both myself and Cody were, had just come on as designers. And so we, we both weren't terribly familiar with fusion and because it was mostly rigging layouts, we, we just decided, Hey, the 2d cat's going to be great for this year. It should be really easy, which I think proved out to be a little less than fruitful, mostly just because of the amount of iterations we went through. But it, you know, it worked. I think it worked out yeah. fine ultimately. Yeah. Um, and you know, get some XREF and goodness. Right. It was a it was a rapid pace, as I recall from those days. Like we were, there was a lot to get done in a very short amount of time, and we had a bunch of us working on it because I was I was kind of involved as the project manager at least through the build of it, and then kind of handed off to Mike once we got to the installation phase, and then. You and Cody and Steve were all working on design work for it. We were designing one custom machine and then one machine that would become a product, but was its first iteration. So there was a lot of a lot of moving parts, literally and figuratively, on that job. 
Yeah, yeah. And then you ended up going down and installing it too, right? Yeah, yeah. And that was a whole other like, layer of figuring out how the dynamics change from when you're the engineer in the shop to when you're on site. And Mike's there too. And Mike's, Mike's going to call the shots. And so that was, that was kind of interesting to be like, oh, okay, I got to see where my role changes depending on what hat I'm wearing in this small organization where everyone has to wear a lot of hats. Like if, it's, right. if I'm designing the thing, I can kind of say a, lo a little bit more like what it is. But if we got a critical path and he's got the intel about how we get in the building or like, you know, just getting to the loading, the loading elevator was, was, was tenuous <laughs> oh, right. at best. <laughs> was, and I was, I was, you know, I was trucking down on a lot of the runs and just trying to figure out like, how do you get a vehicle to the building? <laughs> That's not apparent or easy. I mean, it's basically, yeah, a basic mechanical designer role. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Cool, cool. Was there anything else you wanted to touch in on the ESPN job before we tackle the next thing? No, I think that's good. Yeah, all right. So, and then some some time passed, and we're getting ready for USITT, I believe was the show, right? And um, we wanted to bring a turntable to the show to, to show it off. And there was, you know, a little peek behind the curtain. There was actually some decision tree there um, early on about should we just rent somebody else's turntable to have a turntable in the booth? And then there was a kind of a sick feeling we all got in our stomachs when we were like, wait a second, did, did we just say that we're going to rent somebody else's turntable <laughs> at our trade show booth? <laughs> that doesn't feel right. <laughs> that feels kind of gross on the inside. <laughs> like we would obviously drive it with our machine. Regard well, I shouldn't say obviously, because at this point we're renting other people's equipment. But like the thought was we could use our own revolver, but we would rent somebody's turntable. And then pretty... After a little bit of back and forth, we all came, well, I don't know if we all came, but we eventually got to a decision that uh, now we're going to build our own turntable for this. And that turntables have been a thing that I have recoiled from taking on in the uh, in the company for um, for years, mostly because like nobody ever has the right size turntable. It always feels like if you've got 16 footers, what everybody wants is 18 footers. You've got 18 footers, people want 20s. And if you've got 20s, people want 18s. And you've got 22s, people want 24s. And it's like you end up with just a warehouse full of like every size turntable in six inch increments, you know? Like and next door. <laughs> exactly. Like our good friend Adrian next door, who literally does have a warehouse full of turntables. <laughs> it's true. Um, but we're like, but we decided let's go ahead and make a turntable for this. And then we can also get our feet wet on what we want that, you know, stock product design to look like. So we said, Hey, Harry, how about you work on a turntable? And I said, Hey, yeah, sure. I've got nothing else going on. <laughs> right. And so what was your, what, what was the process for that? What did you, what were your kind of first moves? So I think the, it was it was interesting for me because that was my first shot at a at a stock product design. Um, so I was I was you know really excited to make a good first impression. Um, and I think the we had the I had the benefit and potentially also the challenge of a lot of people had a lot of thoughts about what the turntable should be in the company and and had many years to think about this what had worked for them in the past what hadn't worked. Um, so it started with kind of like culling that list together and figuring out like what are the absolute must haves? What are the things we'd like? And what are the things that if they can happen, great, but if not, you know, no, no sweat off our backs. Um, and so sort of kind of determining what the, what the specs would be for this thing. Yeah. So I think we landed at a 16 foot diameter turntable. Uh, we wanted, uh, we wanted the ability to be assembled by two people in like less than four hours. 
Um, I think there was a preference or at least my preference was really for a weldless design um, just because given that we're really good at machining things and we're less good at welding things together. Um, And then you just don't have to deal with all the warp and distortion. Um, There was also a requirement for some power. So a slip ring in the center to pass, uh, pass through there. Um, Yeah. And there were definitely some other ones, but those those were the major points. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so what did you, so you kind of gathered up, herded all the cats into one corral to say like, this is, this is the, the the basic specs of the turntable that we're going to do. And I think we ended up whittling down the diameter, right? Because didn't the diameter, we started at 16, but didn't we land like more in the 12 range or something for the show? Yeah, I actually, yeah, you're right. It is 12 foot. <laughs> we definitely, start, I don't know how I misremember that, but anyways. <laughs> right, right. No, but because, well, 16 would be a better number. But I think in the end, like as we were laying out the booth specifically, we got down to 12 because we're trying to figure out, it's a 20 by 20 booth and a 16 footer in the middle. Like we didn't have enough aisle way around it, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a little tight. It's a little tight. So we ended up with a 12 foot on that first iteration. And um, and this was going to be your first fusion only design yeah yeah because coming off of vsbn where it was all 2d cat it was sort of like harry you gotta use it whether in anger or (laughs) happiness it's you gotta you gotta get on board and i was was excited admittedly because i i'd I'd done a little work in inventor before and and i kind of knew that coming into the job that i was going to get into the fusion workspace and it's been nothing but roses ever since (laughs) (laughs) right every time just works perfectly um (laughs) and so what did you find were so what is the the basic layout then that you ended up with. So you have the the kind of design parameters and then like what's the rough mechanical architecture of the turntable? Yeah, so the, the, the rough breakdown is there's there's a center hub, which is uh, roughly like four foot by four foot center platform. It's like an octagon shape, um, which can that ha- contains um, like sort of a base plate that can be leveled. Uh, I guess slewing ring, we really like those slewing bearings. Um, the slip ring to pass the power up um, from the center and some some access for that as well as the the electrical so there's uh, a couple the, there's these floor pocket uh, electrical outlets that you can plug in your your electrical goodness um, and then from there there's eight wedges that go around there um, that uh, cough and lock and uh, pin locate uh, to create the these rigid connections and build this the center uh, the 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 diameter uh and then along the exterior there's uh there's a aluminum drive ring so that's giving us a nice friction surface uh for the for the revolver to push into to possibly engage with uh and oh we also built an encoder into the center uh, so we could get right. absolutely so we're not getting any slippage on positioning um, right 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 yeah because that was one of the things that that came up out of that uh you know the trying to synthesize everybody's desires was we love the revolver's ability to be able to drop it into anybody's turntable and read off the edge of the t- turntable. But there's no denying that like the most accurate way to get good readings on a, on a turntable is to do the encoder in the center. <clears throat> and if we're going to be building the center, let's put the encoder in there. Yeah. So there's just a cable that chases out and it's, it's a swap in replacement. So you just unplug your, your TR three on the side of the, the revolver and plug in this cable that's just chased out from the side and yeah. same, same. Yeah. And then that, as you mentioned, like it's all coffin lock and stuff together, right? So very little tool assembly. Yeah. Yeah. I think you need like two Allen keys to put it together. Um, and, uh, in terms of the, the assembly time, I think it went, went really well. I, I definitely can do it in less than an hour and a half and potentially less yeah. than two hours by myself if I need to. They're, they're not, 
they're not comfortable with one man lifts, but you can do it. <laughs> <laughs> and but I, with two people, it's really good. Oh like, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It's like super easy to put together, and you have all this leveling. Like so, the uh, the spider that lives below below the turntable deck is um, all levelable too. Like you've got the leveling feet on the center, and then you put leveling feet on each spider leg coming off. Right? Yeah, yeah. And so those were, I forgot, I forgot about the spiders. Those were pretty cool because we got to use some different tooling. Uh, we we reached out to our friends at uh, Showman Fabricators and used their tube laser to take these big pieces of structural tube and put uh, all the features we wanted in the spider leg. So you got wheels that are going to go up to the the aluminum sweeps on the underside of the platform. Wheels up design because uh, we're not monsters. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And then exactly. they they, uh, they got they got a leveling foot on the end, so you can trim each each spider leg individually, depending on how level your floor is. Um, and then it's all they all attach via quick pins, so like you basically just pop the the legs into place, uh, level it, level out each one, and just repeat times I think twelve, it's either twelve or fourteen legs. I can't remember. Yeah, uh, um, yeah. So all in all, pretty easy. Yeah, which is which was one of the big things I remember out of those early discussions was that the the leveling of the turntable is such a key element to have, and that that does it really nicely. And those two blazered uh, spider legs are pretty badass. Yeah, these things work good. And then the uh, the um, how did you accomplish all of the? You said there's going to be a weldless design. So how did you get? How did you build the platform weldlessly? Oh yeah, so originally we were talking about a lot of water jet plates and then I sent out quotes on a conceptual design that was monstrously expensive. Um, and so we backed down from that a little bit and then I kind of th thought about how to slim down the structure a little bit more. So essentially what we landed with was a sandwich of on the top layer, you got some three quarter inch birch ply and there's some aluminum tube framing that has all our features, our coffin locks, our locator pins and stuff in that and just gives us some structure. And then beneath that layer, we have some gussets and the aluminum sweeps that the, ride, the wheels are riding on. And those have a ton of tapped holes in them because um, we're really good at tapping holes. Mm -hmm. So we just basically have flathead cap screws dropping down through the plywood, through the tubing into those plates, um, kind of sandwiching it all together. Um, so it comes down to a pretty pretty easy to assemble uh, yeah. uh, turntable once you have all the parts ready. It's just you just keep making bolts and loctiting and tightening, <laughs> which is also stuff we're really good yeah. at. <laughs> we can do that all day. <laughs> we, we drive a lot of bolts. Yeah, and then the thing all. If I'm not mistaken, right, doesn't it all fit on like a couple of pallets or something? Like it's a pretty tight pack once it's I, done. It, I think it's all one pallet now. Yeah. yeah. Or I guess the legs kind of usually ship separately. Ship but, yeah, okay. but yeah, it's like one big crate. Yeah. More or less. Yeah, that's pretty cool. It's nice. pretty cool. I'm happy with it. Yeah, absolutely. And then, yeah, so how did you, coming out of that project, how do you, any takeaways from that that you're like, that things that you liked, things that didn't like, things that, you know, you you kind of stuck back in your encyclopedia for next time or things that you're like, oh, I'll never do that again. Or, uh, I think, I think that was a useful, I mean, it was my first time in fusion. So I think it was a lot of like learning out, learning the kinks of how to structure your, your model your more model. effectively. Yeah. So like I'd ended up with this very exploded component tree that I wasn't super happy with at the end, but I don't think it was, it, you know, it's still a workable model. It's not like you open it up and it's all these errors just screaming at you. So that, that was, I would say that was a good outcome for my first design. <laughs> yeah. 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 I was happy about that. Um, I think, I think in general it taught me that I, I could probably, engineer closer to the margins a little bit because I think coming from a theater background where I was like doing more TD work on just, you, you know, when in doubt, build it stout out of things you know about. So I, I think I probably threw more metal at it than I needed to. Yeah. And, uh, you know, leveraging the abilities of, uh, you know, a 
good parametric modeling program, I could probably slim that down even better and just sort of use all this, the features that are built in to kind mm. of make a slicker design. So, yeah. And so then coming off of that project, you we dove into another custom project, but this time closer to that turntable. Like you had to design this giant rotator. So what was the... What was, so it was a center drive machine for a weird thing. What was the what was the what was the client looking for? So yeah, so they were they wanted a turntable drive for this huge scenic element that they called the box, and it was for this uh, theatrical uh, circus company up in Canada, out of, based out of Montreal, uh, Seven Digits, I believe. Um, yeah. And so they, 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 it was a large scenic element that, that it was like a cube-based structure, and it had all these facets on it as well, and things that people could jump off of different levels and do acrobatics and stuff. Um, and they wanted the whole thing to spin, obviously. And it had these big doors that uh, opened and closed on the front, um, and I think initially they were predicting it at like two tons. And as that <laughs> design process crept along, it, the number just kept going up and up and up and up. And I think we landed at like five tons. <laughs> Which and, is quite a spread. Yeah. And so that was like at the outset, two tons. The other thing they, I remember they dropped a number of challenges on us, like right at the initial concept meeting. Was, I was just thinking this too, right? Because wasn't there also supposed to be, it was supposed to be like on a soft mat? Yeah, yeah, because they're acrobats, so they didn't want it to be just like a hard plywood deck. So they're like, "Oh, there's going to be this eight millimeter thick acrobatics mat on the whole thing." I was like, "Oh, <laughs> oh my I God, don't this like going to eat horsepower." <laughs> yeah, and I don't really have a good way of testing what that's going to like gonna eat up. Right. <laughs> we we tried to mock it up, and we I, I did when we built the 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 machine. I think we we put a huge, as much weight as we possibly could fit on a dolly and created this big lever arm off the side of it and tried to use a dyno to calculate like the difference of like rolling on concrete versus rolling on the mat. Yeah. But all it just wanted to do was push the mat over the concrete. Like the amount it was sinking into the mat was <laughs> enough to drag it around. Drag it around. <laughs> I, Which didn't bode well. well. It was like, this is, this is not great, but I'm going to go up to Canada with this in a week and it's going to be, I'm sure it's going to be fine. <laughs> I had totally forgotten about the mat until literally just now. <laughs> yeah, and I remember having those early talks with them and and it, with their technical guys who are really great and yeah. talking to them and being like, have you guys ever done this before? Like, no, nope. Like, aren't you worried about this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we're all worried about this. It's like, <laughs> we were all equally okay. worried. <laughs> <laughs> right. So that, and as I recall, there was early on, there was some question about like how much horsepower, you know, to put in the machine. Right. And I think where you ended up, don't let me put words in your mouth, but where you ended up with like you, you ended up with like a, a volume of space that you could occupy and you shoved as much horsepower in there as you could. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They were like, here's the, we need to support with cat because they were the, some Canadian based scenic company was doing the, the actual box structure. So we were just integrating this machine to them. We we're just going to give them a bolt pattern and they would attach their big scenic element to our rotator. Um, and so there was, there were, there was all this negotiation about, okay, here's the, where we need to support with casters. So basically that creates a caster radius and I got to stay inside that. And then I was like, okay, what's the biggest motor I can fit that stays inside that circle? And how can I position it in that circle? Because I ended up having, a, I, I think I cocked it at some like 9.5 degree angle just so it could just barely fit. It in was there. a jigsaw puzzle. Like it was an impressively, <laughs> impressively dense machine. Yeah. Yeah. I was really leaning on the parametric design. <laughs> <laughs> capabilities of fusion at that moment yeah um and so you ended up with 10 horse right yeah it was a 10 horse was was definitely the biggest it was going to go um 
yeah. for an AC induction motor. And uh, then a in a honking gearbox, right? Center drive. So. Right, right. So we were geared way down. I think it was like a three stage reducer. Um, I think it was, I was it was like twenty seven, maybe it was eighteen RPM. But yeah, it was it was very slow relative right. to. And then and then a where and then a slew ring coming off right. So gearbox to pinion to slewing ring. Yep. So gearbox, yeah. So so like there's a shaft exiting upwards and a pinion right there, and then right mounted right above the motor was the the slewing ring. So we're just shoving right into the side of that and and spinning on that. And then there was like there was a top plate and a slewing ring that fit above that. That was really all that there was north of the motor, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that was how was uh, I'm trying to remember. I mean, this is going back a little bit, but how was the the timing on that was not. It seemed like there was timing issues on the slew ring. Or am I making that up? Uh, there was. You're right, because we because slew rings generally have a pretty like four to five week lead time. I think going through the usual suspects, and I'll, and I think also we, we this one was budgeted a little tight because we because you had you were friends with because <laughs> I'd hacked a lot of money out of it. Yeah, it's cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we were like, okay, how can, can we get a used? Let's let's start with the slew ring. Let's find one on eBay. Yeah. Uh, classic Allen move. Uh, find the eBay slew ring and then and then build the machine around that. And I tried that route for a while, um, but then it was it's just like seeing things They're like, oh, we just sold that one. Oh, that that one's actually like we just sent it to the you know recycling yard. Like, so that wasn't playing out. And then I ended up finding this company. Slew Pro that had basically knockoff Caden diam like the same exact specs as Caden bearings, but like a half the price because they produce them in India and I think instead of the U.S. Um, yeah. So that, that they ended up just coming in in time. Uh, I think yeah. it was initially like really good lead time, and then there were delays, 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 delays. And, yeah. then, and then just at the, just in the nick of time, like all right as we were finishing the the weldment for the base frame, I think we was like, oh, and there's the bearing, great. Cool. Yeah, and so the the main structure of this was not like an aluminum bolt together thing like we normally do, but this was a was a giant welded steel yeah. monolith, right? Yeah, yeah. So because I knew that it was you know driving from the center, we're, we're dealing with this huge lever and a lot of weight on there. Yeah. So I was really concerned about like what would happen to the structure. Would it would it just twist apart when we hit like category zero on on a full speed stop? Um, so and and on top of that, we were attached to a temporary decking structure. So I was truly trying to manage it down to like how what our connection was to that, and that that ultimately came together again at the eleventh hour. But <laughs> <laughs> and it was a temporary deck uh, structure that was going to be outside outside in Dubai. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like the motor is going to get up to like 140 during the day. It might cool down to a to a chill 120 degrees Fahrenheit <laughs> by nighttime, but don't count on it. <laughs> so there's a service D rating for that. I learned. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, and there's going to be sand, sand everywhere. everywhere. <laughs> it's just going to blow and everything. <laughs> Thankfully, they own the machine, so we don't have to clean that out afterwards. Um, but yeah. Uh, so that so that giant steel structure that you're so you're trying to, you know you're going to be center center driven. You got the east, the category zero e stop concerns. You got a, a a nebulous connection to some temporary deck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Th so these were the challenges, and that's where it was where the first time I leaned on the simulation workspace in Fusion, which was really was was really pretty easy to use. Um, so I did a little bit of simulation on the initial structure, and it was like, oh, that's not going to be happy. Um, based on my ballpark estimates for what a cat zero would do to it and then uh, beef that up a lot. So I think I ended up with the base plate in some, in a lot of places like a solid inch of steel 
and then everywhere else like the the upright portions of the weldment were like half inch plate and it was it was all yeah. tab and slot and weld together and that's again why we went that versus aluminum because it was just like the our captive fastener detail just is it's not, not gonna, gonna hold happen. up to this we're just gonna be popping socket heads <laughs> if, if that's gonna happen <laughs> yeah. and, I, and i think i designed a version of it like that but it was it, you just looked at it and you're like there's the, no way it's not gonna work <laughs> yeah it's not gonna hold together <laughs> no <laughs> Yeah, that, that thing was mammoth, but very dense too. There was not a lot of, as we mentioned already, not not much open space. And then you were vertically constrained too, because they, yeah. they didn't want it to be super tall. So I had to put like the slip ring was right over the motor. So there was probably less clearance than you really wanted. <laughs> right. <laughs> but it, it, it fit eventually. <laughs> <laughs> and then there was some crazy braking scheme, right? Yeah. Yeah. So they, cause they're, cause we're driving from the center and a known thing with a lot of those, you know, is you're going to get backlash from the, the slop in the, in the rack and pinion. So they, they knew that going in and planned for a pneumatic braking system. So like little pancake puck cylinders. And I think they worked with air pucks who is really puts together a really good system yeah uh, i gotta say like everything like they just sent a box with all the parts and it's all labeled and like they put sent all the tools in there and a ton of spares it was it was worked really nicely uh in terms of all the pneumatic plumbing and everything and so what we had to do was uh get the we ended up deciding to use the load break circuit um, which is already on a timer uh, a time delay in our in our plc code to uh to, to act to actuate their air braking system. So I chased that up to the slip ring and then there was some connection that chased out to a box that controlled some pneumatic valves and yeah, fun times. And that you couldn't see, we didn't have those parts here. So like it, to drive that point a little bit, like, so you were integrating this custom machine into a piece of scenery that you were not going to see until you got there to do the integration in Canada and you're, passing models back and forth or drawings back and forth with the scenic company in Montreal. Yeah. Yeah. And so the, the and easy, then, the easy part was just getting a bolt connection on the top of this, of right. the, of the, the, uh, turntable drive. The trickier part was, uh, kind of figuring out what, how the pneumatic braking system was actually going to perform in real life. Cause I having done those before, I'm like, there's always a delay on the time when you throw that switch to when those things actually go down or come up. Yeah. Um, so I kind of knew that was going to be a challenge from the get go. Um, and so I was just mocking up in the shop with a single, cil single cylinder, which of course was going to perform fine because there's like <laughs> right. practically no, no <laughs> tubing between right. that and that. Um, and then it turned out when we got there is we, we probably needed a little more than that half second delay from the low break release to starting movement. Yeah. Um, and so we ended up doing a bit of back and forth, you and I, I either base camp or text or emails or something to try and figure, to try and get you a better, uh, delay timing. And so that, that timing delay is hard coded at the C layer on our <clears throat> motion controller. So we ended up like patching and sending you a bunch of different firmware files. And then there was also a tweak to our Mitsubishi PLC code that we had to do to kind of acknowledge that to, to, to allow that different timings to work and everything. And so there was, but that was all fairly happening kind of late night, kind of like <laughs> it wasn't, it was an ideal. I should have thought about this more before I got to Canada. <laughs> Well, and it was, yeah, I, the whole thing was pretty, I mean, it, it wasn't as though there was no time on it, but it was tight. Like the, by the time, you know, the timeline was not particularly long on those. And as I recall, like, I know, uh, well, actually I didn't even say, I know, I think Breezy did the welding on that weldment. Yeah. 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 He, but then he killed it on that. It was, it was like so flat and square. That but then great. you did, not only did you design the machine, but you 
built the machine beyond at once the thing <laughs> welding was done you built like the custom electrical enclosures and then you went and installed the thing too so you kind of you know it was like you and a couple of people helping it at a few hours here and there and you saw the thing from initial concept to installed in canada yeah it was just fun i like i like that kind of through line workflow it was it was and it was it was also a good opportunity for me to like learn more on the inner workings of how the shop goes because it was like when i was machining like doing all the secondary ops on the plate like plates uh you know breezy's hovering over my shoulder like oh you probably should do this and i'm like oh great okay <laughs> and then i'm like wiring up the the brake brake uh relay box and sylvia's like well you should probably do this and i was like oh okay good good good, good. <laughs> so now i know like standards and how we do like to do things and i think that was a useful exercise yeah, 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 yeah. But it was that was quite something. And in the end, it all worked out pisser. I yeah, mean, yeah. We didn't pull any long days on site. Like it was, it was a little scary for touch and go for a second there. But it all worked out. And you know, once we got that that break timing delay in there, it was it was great. And it's mostly because because we, we were we were we as as much as I felt behind in the moment, the scenic vendor was a little bit more behind so like they were built actively building structure around this thing as i'm spinning it around and just hoping that the c clamps they've got on the, all the aluminum tubes is going to hold it together i'm also just trying not to break the thing as they build it <laughs> hey, can you guys stop drilling i'm going to spin the thing you're on <laughs> yeah, exactly what's that grinding noise it's a grinder <laughs> <laughs> yep and then the last thing I thought would be fun to talk about is the um, what we'll call the California lift. So um, we did a, uh, a, a job for an unnamed client out in California that um, was initially conceived as basically our floor pocket. Um, it was going to be our, a couple of our floor pockets. But then as we got into it, there's some unique demands uh, on the performance of the machine that really steered us. We were like, well, it's it's floor pocket in as much as it's an elevator, <laughs> like a, I guess a mast. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. A mast lift. Um, but beyond that, it's, we're kind of throwing everything else away. So, um, what was the biggest thing I think with that, uh, or the bit, the stiffest requirement was this requirement for redundancy. So what was the, we often think of like redundancy about being fail safe, right? Like that if one component fails, we can still stop the machine. This was a little different. Yeah, I think the phrase we developed was fail to completion. <laughs> <laughs> Those are artful words. Um, so the the requirement from the client was that in, in the in the event that motion's happening and one axis faults, that the another axis or some some mechanism will allow this thing to get to the end of its move because it really needs to the the pressure on this event is so high that we need to complete all our moves. Um, so there was a, we, we were kind of mulling over a bunch of different ways to approach that. And I think we started from the controls and software side of right. like, you know, could we have like two acts, two stage hands hooked up to a single motor and like it, one's running it and then the other one can switch over with some Beckoff magic happening in a black box that we haven't developed yet. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. And it, it, those are the kinds of ideas that all, all sound kind of reasonable, like in the, initial like proposal phase and then once it's you know really uh whatever you want to you know whatever euphemism you want to use like but once the rubber hits the road you're like i don't think we can do that in this amount of time like there there is i don't 
I don't think we're going to be able to actually pull that off. It's just like just as likely that we're just going to trip over ourselves and create one more yeah. potential step step of failure, and that doesn't doesn't really address like the you know if if the motor were to burst into flames, like you're still not going to move anything, which right low probability, but you know it could it's happened. could happen, could happen, yeah. And so so we quickly moved from that to let's look at mechanical redundancy into a slightly more Soviet approach of like we'll put two motors on the machine, but even with two motors on the machine, like how would how does that work? And then what are the challenges there? Yeah. Yeah. And we kicked around a lot of different ideas and I was doing research into a lot of like more like automotive and industrial parts, like clutches to try and like transmit torque from one, one drive axis, but not from another. I think where we ended up settling was just two motors with through bores on a single shaft. Um, so that, Basically, we're running one, either one of the two motors at a time, and then the, there's no motor side brakes. Um, so when one motor's running, it's just back driving the other one, and it's you just have to overcome the, in a, the you know the friction of the the gearbox. Um, but essentially, the, the other one's just along for the ride. Um, and so in order to have because it's a lifting application, in order to get our two brakes, we went to two load brakes. Um, but we didn't want to deal with the challenge of having to deal with the brake switching uh, um, and the fact that we were potentially back driving through it. Yeah. Not trying to scrub through, through a brake is going to be loud. Code. Yeah. Our yeah. experience with when you have, when we have run through brakes is that those things are noisy. Yeah. But, but we found this product or well, Gareth had seen this product years ago and had, had fantasized about potentially implementing it. Right. And he pointed me in the right direction. Um, these purely mechanical brakes. Um, so what they are is a, an overrunning clutch Um attached to a spring set brake so in one direction they free spin and then in the other direction you engage the clutch and that goes into the spring set brake so essentially in, in our up or rotation we're just free driving, spinning free yeah. spinning up and then driving down you have to the load's going to help you overcome the spring set on the brake and you're going to drive you're also going to need the to torque the motor to do the rest and get it down um, and we have two of them, so really you got to overcome one of the brakes plus whatever headroom you have on the brake in order to get down. But if you sufficiently oversize the motors as we did, <laughs> then you have no problem doing that whatsoever. And it turns out that they're actually really quiet. Um, the people who make these are, do a really good job with it. So yeah, yeah and that's out. Rowland, I think, right? The Rowland company. company. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and they're they're expensive and take a long time to get, but they do work. They do work quite yeah. well. Yeah. And then so so we had that kind of the the idea there at least and then the the basic structure of the lift started off as kind of a repeat of the initial floor pocket but making some adjustments to try and uh, eliminate some of the alignment challenges we have had in the past but that basic skeleton was still mod trust well that's what, yeah and that's where we started so we yeah. we we like the idea of like some easy off-the-shelf structure um, that you can get for the mast and we and we like the client was into the the mast lift structure which yeah. is nice and easy to sort of wrap in and out of your space um and so we started with the the mod trust but having kind of learned the lessons of building floor pockets before it can be sometimes tricky to get the heavy rails that we use as the linear guidance in alignment um given that the mod trust is a welded structure so there's a little bit of tolerance variance that doesn't necessarily align nicely with linear guides um and so that can be a challenge um and then so we pivoted from that and we're like well what other kind of easy structures can we can we buy and then just you know machine some kind of connection detail and then we we looked at um Montrose makes an extrusion product which is really strong um and has a lot of t-slots which is great so it's just like mechanical yeah. fastener attachments and 
Um, that was really exciting for a little while, and we were working, uh, getting third-party engineering on that, but they got a little wary about the alloy of the aluminum that that, that uh, extrusion was made from. So where we ended up ultimately settling was just using sort of the uh, the same kind of connection detail we use on a lot of our machines, which is um, plates with interlocking ta uh, tabs and slots and captive fasteners. So rather than doing off-the-shelf structural components, just... I say just, but <laughs> cut, cut, every, cut, cut everything, right? Like all custom shapes, all on the water jet table, all captive fasteners, bolt everything together, make the structure out of flat plate. Yeah. And we were, we were, we're pretty, by the end of it, we were getting pretty, because I'm iterating like one, two, three versions of, of this structure. Yeah. It was getting a little tight on time, but we do have a really good water jet vendor who cuts things really tight, uh, tight tolerances and is pretty good on lead times. So it was, you know, surprised we could get all the features we wanted on there and we could be pretty confident they were going to, it was all going to fit together. Right. You know, um, yeah. and ultimately yeah. went, went together pretty, pretty nicely. It was all, uh, so it was like four sides of a, a half inch aluminum plate that I'll just tad and slot and bolt together and, didn't yeah. really have any issues. I think it's worth driving home that point a little bit more, though, that, like, you, having watched you do all of that work, like, you basically designed the machine three times, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, okay. more or less. <laughs> I mean, so for anyone playing along at home, or especially any, like, budding mechanical designers, like, it's good to, I think it's a good lesson because it's one that comes up for us a lot. And I, I don't think we're alone in this. I mean, maybe maybe everybody else nails it on the first try, but I, I, I tend to think that there are people who redo their work and then there are liars. Like, <laughs> like, like you, like to get far enough into it to even find out that you were dissatisfied with the required an awful lot of effort to get there. Like you, it, it wasn't enough just to sit back and think about it. You had to design it, look at it, review it. And then oftentimes either reviewing it, you know, when, with, with client reviews or reviewing it on our internal reviews. And we'd find enough things that were like, ah, maybe this, let's take another tack. And then you would go back and design it again. And then you'd go back and design it again. I mean, th there were three machines designed almost to completion are very close. I mean, you know, it's like, yeah, <laughs> they're pretty far along. <laughs> you have to get like that far before you look, start swimming out. And you're like, my core assumptions were off. <laughs> this, this but I think, I think that was also a testament to why it ultimately worked pretty well when we had, when we finally got to the real machines and it was pretty tight to the wire. Yeah. It was just like all those brain cycles that were by other people, not, not just myself on like, Oh, well actually we want, we kind of want this. And you know, for this fun to, to fabricate this, well, you want to change the detail like this way and and so i really appreciated the sort of uh, collaborative design reviews that we do the process was really a big win on that on that uh job for yeah sure. yeah 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 no it definitely was it came out it came out great but it's just a it's a good lesson in like patience and dedication too because it's it's not easy i mean i as a guy who has at times designed things too, it's it's easy to kind of get sucked into the romance of your first idea of like, you know, it's kind of your thing, but it's really help more healthy to have uh, uh, some separation there so you can look at it with a critical eye yourself and say like, eh, yeah, no, this, this could be better. I'm going to, th let's, let's try this other thing. And then also to enjoy what you do enough to not mind the the crazy, the crazy amount of effort that you're just like flushing away. Like, yep, it'll be better next time. I'm going to do it again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It doesn't need to be my idea. It just has to be a good idea. Yeah. And I think ultimately like, you know, you know, still there's an, 
most of the ideas in those designs are still yours. It, they, you know, certainly got informed along the way by other people. Uh, but, uh, but just to have that healthy, like, even if it's, even if it's all your ideas, just to be able to separate your investment in the, your first idea and be like, nah, well, you know, whatever. I, the other thing I think that's important about those things personally, and I, I don't know, I mean, you can let me know if you disagree with this, but it's like, there's no real lost work, right? Like that every one that you go through, exactly. like you are learning more something, either you're learning more about the process, you're learning more about the, that machine itself. You're learning more about how you would do it better next time. You, like, yeah. It's usually the last one, but like <laughs> <laughs> that's still worth something. Like I'm not going to do that again. <laughs> <laughs> right. Even if it's just like something simple, like I'm not going to, you know, however I'm going to, I'm going to drive this thing all off of sketches and fusion rather than like deriving this off of another component or whatever, you know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Try yeah. take take some swings and see if it works. And if it doesn't, well, it's yeah, nothing gain, nothing wagering. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Whatever. Something. One of those. <laughs> there's there's gains and wagers there's, involved. Yeah. yeah. I'm, not a, I'm not a gambling man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's kind of it, it's pretty cool to hear that progression. I mean, it you know, and there's there there are more machines in the mix even now but it's i thought it would be fun to kind of step through those the the last couple of years here and uh and talk through those those machines cuz it's you know you go from like jumping in with not even knowing fusion and not knowing how we do things here et cetera, et cetera. but um and then you know getting up to some super high profile super, super complicated machines with some pretty heavy processes along the way yeah thanks for let me talk about it. It's yeah, it's kind of cool to look at it like that. <laughs> and we got some cool stuff coming up. We do. Oh yeah, this is definitely not the end of the road. Like, <laughs> <laughs> we got a lot of a lot of. I mean, this the next twelve months I think are going to be a, a really crazy ride. It's shaping up uh, from what we can see already at this vantage point. It's going to be twenty twenty one is going to have some really awesome. Uh, podcast because 2020 we're going to be busy doing it but we can reflect on it again in 2021 <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah probably not <laughs> awesome well thanks so much harry for uh sitting down and chatting oh thanks for having me and thank you guys for listening uh and we'll uh, catch you next time